0: We're coming to a scripture today, Psalm 73, where a person who in some ways was like us, he was, he was in church on Sunday, in a sense. He, it wasn't church in the traditional sense that you and I think of church, but he went to the house of worship. He went to the sanctuary of God. His name was Asaph. You say, well, who in the world is Asaph? Well, you've read about him. Probably know, don't know much about him, but he actually wrote some of the Psalms in the Bible. He was a worship leader. He was from the tribe of Levi. He was appointed by none other than King David uh, to be a worship leader, a song leader in the Tent of Meeting, which was the predecessor, of course, to the first temple which Solomon built. David didn't build the temple, Solomon did. So, before the, the uh, Temple of Solomon, uh, the sanctuary was the gathering place, the gathering place rather, the sanctuary was the Tent of Meeting. And David had appointed this man named Asaph, who wrote a number of psalms, including the one we're looking at together today, Psalm 73. We have more in common with this fellow than we perhaps see right now. So I invite you to open up your Bible to that particular psalm as we're going to look at it together in uh, these next uh, few moments. Thank you, Lord, for finding my little clicker. (laughs) Thank you for the day, the joy of gathering with one another with knowing that you are a God who is near, you're not only a God who's far away, you're a God who's near. You're above your creation. You're outside of it, but you're also active within it. And you live in the hearts of your people. That's profound and really hard for us to fully even fathom. Would you cause us today to see afresh your love and your hope? Your word, would it open our lives like an like a opening flower might our lives open up to you and receive your word today? the water of it and the meat of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I had an earlier start than normal today. I'm an early riser, if you know me, you knew that. But today I was up at about four for some reason and I had such a beautiful thought that was a- coming across the radar of my mind that I couldn't go back to bed. I thought, I'm gonna write that down. I believe this, this is a truth, this is a solid thing and I'm, I'm supposed to meditate on this today. And so here's-, here's what I wrote down. Everything good I have ever received in this life I have received from a good, good father. I don't mean my earthly father. He was a good man, but I'm talking about, of course, the king, the Lord. Everything good I've ever received in this life, I have received from a good, good father. My heart was warm to that truth, and I, I knew that before I woke up this morning, but I, I was freshly warm to that reality in my life. Now, that doesn't mean that my heart is always in that happy place. That doesn't, I don't want to suggest to you for a moment that My days are lived without worry or anxiety or problems. If you know me, you know better than that. Daily difficulties in your life, in my life, can crowd out the joyful moments, the happy moments of repose and reflection, uh, such as I had this morning. In fact, we can lose sight of God's mercies and His goodness. And while we can celebrate His goodness one day, uh, things can happen in a short order that make us question His goodness. They can make us wonder if he forgot about us somehow, or what happened. Somebody said it this way: Life is what happens when life is what happens to you when you're making other plans, and simply meaning life interrupts itself, if you will. Things come up; they pop up, and sometimes the what happens is catastrophic in people's lives. During the Second World War, uh, as, as London was enduring what was known as the London Blitz—that heavy bombing by the Germans of of Britain's capital, a well-known preacher of the day, his name was Leslie Weatherhead. His church suffered not once or twice or 10 times, but over 20 times the bombing of their facilities. They kept moving to a different location, and then it would get bombed, and they'd have to relocate the church to another location, and then the next airstrikes would bomb that location, and just just the way it worked out. They lost over 20 different uh, places of meeting. And after they reached over the 20th time and had to keep relocating, their pastor had a nervous breakdown. Life was just too catastrophic. He, he was just having such a hard time with it, and who wouldn't? Where is honest hope in life? Sometimes we're, we're doing our eager best. We, 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 we were working hard to be a good egg, to take care of the things that seem to be the most important in life, and yet bad things can happen, and we go... God, what are you saying to me right now? Or Am I missing something? Or what's going on in my life? Leslie Weatherhead wrote this. He said, where is God's will in all of this? He honestly pondered that, and he had a crisis and hit a nervous breakdown in his life. At times, life becomes more than a person feels he or she can bear. You know, last month, perhaps you saw it in the news, a pastor of only 30 years old out in Southern California tragically ended his own life because... Despair and grief had overcome his heart. His wife spoke up just a few days ago. Her name is Kayla. She said, quote, never in a million years would I have imagined this would be the end of his story. She just can't believe it. And now she has three boys to raise without a father, and their church has an unexplainable loss to to deal with for years to come. W. Frank Harrington, a preacher from not that long ago, said this, all of life's music is not in perfect harmony. What starts out to be a symphony becomes a cacophony, and discordant notes often dominate the score. That's a picture of life. I'm not a pessimist, I'm an optimist, but having said that, I want to be a realistic optimist. There's a guy in the Bible named Asaph, I've already mentioned him to you today, who I would say is a realistic optimist, and I want you to turn with me to the psalm. I want you to look with me and see his opening words. He's certainly not a pessimist. He certainly hasn't given up hope in life. He's not thrown in the towel of his faith and said, I'm done with this. I'm, I'm not going to do the, the God thing anymore. I'm giving up on all of this. He's not there. But he's, he's going to give you, perhaps, I believe, one of the most candid depictions in the whole Bible of a believer who is honest with his, his guts, if you will, to write down the grief And the frustration that he was enduring at a certain point in his life. He doesn't hide that from us. And God has inscripturated that experience. It's part of the word now. I think one of the things I love about the Psalms, that I appreciate about the Psalms, is they let you be human. They let you breathe. They let you pour out your complaint before God. David said that. I pour out my complaint before you, Lord. To me, when I read that years ago, just that statement in Scripture, it gave me permission to tell God my frustrations. I realize that's not unspiritual. That's probably the most spiritual thing I can do is say, Lord, I'm having a bad day, and this really stinks, and I don't get it. It's good to be real. He knows that anyway, right? He knows about our bad days, and we just we kid ourselves if we think, well, I can never share the bad stuff with the Lord. He knows it all, and so we don't have to pretend it's not there, then the, the doubts or the frustrations of life. Psalm 73, truly, God is good to Israel. Hmm, doesn't sound like a cynic. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He's in a good place, would you say, based on that. But he doesn't hide from you and from me the reality of where he's been. Verse 2, but as for me, Asaph, he's looking in the mirror, he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. They seem to just go on living, these fat cats, we might call them. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. You've heard of the myth of the green grass. He's looking around and saying, these people seem to have greener yards than me, and I don't get it. Worse than that, I'm trying to follow the God of the Scriptures, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of my fathers, they're not doing any such thing. And they're doing better than me. How does that work? That's really the questioning that's going on here in his, in his mind. Look at his words, verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. These aren't good people that he sees, that, aren't, that, that he's looking at. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, against God himself, that is, and their tongue struts through the earth. He sees their irreverence. He sees their callousness. He sees their hard-heartedness. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. He's saying these are birds of a feather. They... They, they they rally together and nobody finds fault with anybody being like this, kind of cold and heartless and in life for themselves. It's the dog eat dog, rat race kind of world. In in fact, verse eleven, and they say, "How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High?" They're not worried about accountability to a to a holy God. Behold, verse twelve. These are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Here's his plight at verse thirteen. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Just that far right now in the reading of, of God's word. Well, false hopes in life can become fatal attractions that lead us to even greater disappointments. Now, there's a heart. it's not always easy to see the line between an honest hope and a false hope. But if we start to put hopes into the things of the world or certain things that we want that the world celebrates and has, we could be veering quickly into false hope territory. And we'll, we'll elaborate that a little bit here as we go forward. Perhaps you can relate here to Asaph. Perhaps you could say uh, from your own experiences of life, here or there, that life seems to have broken its promises to you. Think about that. Has that does that happen? Do you feel like life has broken its promise? You got married, and maybe it didn't end well. You started a new job, but you didn't get promoted. You fill in the blank. We've all got some disappointments in life. You applied for the college of your dreams, and you didn't get accepted. You hoped to make the next rank in the military, but you didn't, and you got, in fact, encouraged to to finish. We've got, got our stories. Every one of us does, and Asaph is telling us, his story, and he's being really honest about it. The battle in his heart is real. The battle in your heart and mine today is probably very, very real. He doesn't hide his battle from us. He says, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? He's looking around him at society, and it's not so different than ours. The the theology, if you can call it, or philosophy of society is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. He says, I'm choosing not to do that. I'm going to the house of God every day. I've I've thrown in my lot with the people that want to elevate the God of heaven. But we're struggling over here as we're trying to follow him. And these people that aren't doing that, that aren't coming to this temple, this uh, tent of meeting, this sanctuary, they're doing great. And he's grieved. It galls him. It offends him. I don't think we can overstate that. He was getting bitter. He was just upset. That's not even a strong enough word. Bitter, resentful asking himself, is this worth it? What am I doing? Life is breaking its promises to me, He's saying it just doesn't make sense. He's thinking, if I live the best life I know how to live under the God of heaven, I expect good things to happen. That seems to be a sensible, rational, moral truth. But life just doesn't seem to be playing out that way. Isn't that true in our lives that sometimes the facts of faith don't seem to align up well with the facts of life, and we just scratch our heads? Now, if we're honest, we'll admit that. I think it's easy for us to say, well, I don't know if I dare bring that up. I don't know if I can be honest that I have some doubts here. We don't do ourselves any, any favors when we deny the fact, the simple truth, that we're disappointed at times in our Christian experience, or that we don't have victory in every department of life, or that we're failing in some area of life. Let's just be honest. The Scriptures are honest with the, with, with the humanity, the struggles, the fragile nature of our hearts, and we can be that with the Lord, in our struggles, we can admit disappointments with how life has turned out, and we can say, Lord, I don't understand why this has happened in my life. There's a difference between asking those questions and just becoming an embittered person that is angry at God and, and it raises its fist to the, to the heavens and leaves it there. Again, I, I encourage you to look at the front of this psalm and the end of it, and, and the psalmist is doing anything but raising a fist to God. He says, truly, God is good. But in the midst of that truth, he's saying, but here's my struggle let me let me walk you through it and tell you how where I've been. At times I didn't always believe that God was good. At times I doubted it. At times I just I just had to bite my tongue because I just wanted to scream at how tough life was. You say well, you're adding to the scripture? No, I'm not. Look at verse 15. You see his self-restraint here. He's just talked to us about his woes and his misery. And then verse 15 is a bit of a summary. If I had said I will speak thus, what does that mean? If I, would, if I would have blabbed the things I've just said widely, openly, publicly. Remember, he's a worship minister. If he'd have stood up there on a Sunday morning and, and castigated uh, God for all the, the, his perceived shortcomings in Asaph's life. If he'd have spoken ill of, of following God. He says this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He realized there's a cost to blow in my stack. I can be honest with my troubles and my struggles, but I can also do a lot of harm with those. And, and so he bit his tongue. He, he showed some self-restraint, but he didn't hide the fact that he was struggling. In fact, he writes about it, right? And it becomes a psalm, a psalm that I think we need. You know, life has a lot of promises it makes to us and breaks probably every day. You hear different things, right, that are supposedly helpful little, what do we want to call them, um, well, there's quotes. There's another word I'm looking for here. It's not anecdote. I'll think of it. But you've heard this. Laugh and the world laughs with you. Cry and you cry alone. That's really bogus. It's not true. Crying will draw a bigger crowd any day than laughter. So don't say that to people. You know, when they're, when they're hurting, respect the fact they're hurting. Say, you know, I don't understand that grief, but help me understand don't give them a trite little little answer. Um, here's another one. Every day in every way, the world is getting better and better. That's not true. Wish it were true. If you believe that, your TV must be out of operation. You're not watching the news. Because that's, that's it's just not true. Here's another one. There's a light. Some of these Christians say this. There's a light at, at the end of every tunnel. You know, that can give false hope to somebody. That light at the end of somebody's tunnel might... Might be a train coming at them. Life might be getting worse before it gets better. And we can be realistic and not, not say things that maybe aren't true or that are just wishful thinking. We don't know everything that was going on in the psalmist's life, Asaph. He doesn't tell us everything that was going on in his life, but he was feeling jipped. He was fe- looking around him at circumstances, and he says, I'm gypped. This just doesn't compute. Wickedness and suffering should go together. But wickedness and prosperity seem to be married to each other. He says goodness and good fortune should go together. But that's not working out in my life. It's not the reality as he looked at life. And the psalmist's dilemma are really twofold here. He's he's stricken with the twin terrors of greed and envy. They're like evil twins. And I'll expand this just a little bit, but he doesn't hide this from us. If you look at the really the opening words to the psalm, go back to the first, uh, the, first uh, the third verse, verse three I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on to describe their prosperity. And, and these are two different things, yet they're related greed and envy. We could call them again the twin terrors. I won't get into an extensive breakdown of how they're different and unique. I'll give you maybe one example. Greed is about stuff. Envy is about status. Imagine taking a look at your neighbor's backyard and seeing that his grass is greener. If you're predisposed towards greediness, you want your grass to be as green as his. If you're predisposed towards envy, you just simply want his grass to turn brown. See the difference? It's subtle. Neither are healthy. These can be very destructive forces in our lives. And I think I'm not, personally, I'm not a psychologist, but I think that most of us are predispositioned towards one of these two bents, not both of them equally, but probably we're more one than the other. It's good to be aware of what are we and, and, and say, Lord, help me with this. I read the story this week of a Wall Street trader who experienced the deadly menaces of greed and envy. He was a young man, and he made it to Wall Street and got on the trading floor and built up legitimately a very uh, successful, lucrative uh, life as a trader. And he had this to say, as he accumulated it, as he made great money and surpassed goals and got all kinds of bonuses, he said this, quote, on the trading floor, everyone sits together. And so you're sitting next to people that are doing better than you. Even if you're doing what you think is tremendous, there's always somebody near you that's exceeding what you're doing. And he gives an example. He says, when the guy next to you makes $10 million a year, your $2 million doesn't look so sweet anymore. In his eighth year on Wall Street, he said his bonus was $3.6 million. Most of us don't live in that financial universe. And even though he had a bonus of $3.6 million, he said, I was angry because it wasn't enough. Wow. Wow. He said he got so sick by the twin terrors of greed and envy that he finally had to leave the business altogether because it was killing him. It was ruining his soul and keeping him up at night, thinking, I need more, I need to have more. Despair is not the end of the story for Asaph. He didn't let the twin terrors reign. He saw through them, didn't he? But how did he see through them? How how did he regain perspective We need to regain perspective, and I'm going to come to that in just a a short moment. I mentioned to you a moment ago this uh, preacher who had a nervous breakdown, Leslie Weatherhead, after the bombings of all the churches. He suffered, and yet it it was a poem, the one on your screen by Robert Browning that helped him out of his depression. If I stoop into a dark, tremendous sea of cloud, it is but for a time I hold God's lamp close to my breast. Its splendor, soon or late, will pierce the gloom. I shall emerge one day. And he did. Leslie Weatherhead went on to write a book on the will of God that became known internationally. And the suffering that he endured became, a, out of it was a byproduct of great, of great importance to help people see God in the midst of suffering. He came out of it. Asaph came away from his dark struggles, his dark night of the soul, with hope again. And we're going to see how his perspective was changed. But for now, I want you to see this important point. The present, present day circumstances. The present, friends, is not the permanent. Let's say that together. Say it with me. The present is not the permanent. One more time. The present is not the permanent. And so you see that here in the scripture, right, in this case. Look with me back at the psalm. Well, the present situation, the dire circumstances did not stay permanent here. There there was a point of incredible agony. Verses 12, 13 are giving you that. Verse 14, verse 15. You move down to verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me, understand what? The present situation, which he's been describing. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Verse 17, though, comes next. Hope gets reborn, perspective gets changed. He met with God, he had an encounter with the living God. Look at what he says until I went into the sanctuary of God. Can I uh, paraphrase here? You know what he did? He went to church. Now, somebody's going to say, that's not an accurate, Pastor. They didn't go to church in the Old Testament. Well, don't, it's an analogy. You're right. They didn't have the local assembly like this called the church. The New Testament church didn't come until Jesus created it, right? But he went to the equivalent of what this is. He went to the tent of meeting, he went to the sanctuary of God, he went to the place where those who were like him, who wanted to elevate God in their life, that's where they went those who had faith in the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob, that's where, that's where he went. And in fact, he served there. He was a worship leader there. And he says, when I went there, God met me. God met me there, and it's, it's between the lines, but God met him through the people there, through the, what happened there, the worship there, the, under, the reading of the word there, the things that we do here. God, are you lost, if you've lost perspective, God can help you regain it here. If you're losing perspective in your life, today, and all of us do at times, that's not the time to quit going to church, even though that's sometimes where our frust- some of our frustrations are. It's not the time to leave it. It's the time to say, I need it, and I'll get over my hurts and my hurdles and my hangups because God gives me, he resets my perspective when I'm among his people. That's what happened here. He didn't just go say a prayer in the sanctuary of God and have some mystical experience and say, oh, now now life's better. I see everything. It was the whole banana. It was the whole experience of what happened when he was in the sanctuary. I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. The Lord spoke perspective into his life and he realized the present is not the permanent. Look what he says. Truly, you set them in slippery places. There was a revelation there. The Lord was saying, this isn't permanent what you see here. I am a God of truth, of purity, of righteousness, of judgment. God's being long-suffering towards the world in its wickedness, not wanting that any would, would perish, right? But he says, look at the perspective he's got. Truly, verse 18 again, you set them in slippery places. God knows what's going on in the world with all the horrendous things. He's not blind to that. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. He realizes the wisdom of God has entered his heart, and he's been transformed. Verse 19, how they are destroyed... In a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. And it's not good to wish ill on your enemies. I don't think he's doing that. He's saying if they don't turn and repent and come follow the one true God, their end is abysmal. It's the abyss. Like a dream, verse 20, when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I wasn't thinking about the real big truths of life. But God, you've shown me those again. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Where do we go for perspective? Where did the psalmist acquire it? This is kind of repeat here. The answer is, well, you're already here. The answer is you come here right where you are. If this is the church God's called you to be a part of, you're in the right place. Because he's going to help you keep perspective and get stronger perspective on who he is, on who you are, and how he's for you and not against you. And there'll be people here to pray for you, and people here to kid with you, and people just to have, have do life with. Now I know I'm preaching to the choir, but maybe I'm not. Maybe someone's here and you're, they're really not integrated. You're just kind of skirting or skimming the surface of church life, and you need to go deeper. You need to get involved. You need to serve with your gifts. You need to make some friendships. You need to get in a small group. You need—we need each other. I need you, I, and I mean that. And I believe that we need one another here. And don't take my word for it. The the scriptures tell us that. The psalmist encountered God in the place where God's people assembled, and you know what? That hasn't changed. We still encounter God in the place where God's people assemble. Now you need some scripture on that. It's sorry, I'm going a little fast here. I can come back to that if you need the fill-ins. Psalm 73:17 is the hinge to understanding the psalm. I got to get my slides caught up here. Um, yep, the local church. I just get preaching and I forget all about this, don't I? Maybe I wasn't supposed to find it today and see. I just. So here, let's read this together. Ephesians 2.19. Read it with me, please. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You having a bad day? Look at that and let the Lord spark faith in you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You hear that, you read that, you let that begin to simmer on your heart and your mind, and you go... Huh, society's telling me I'm a loser because I'm not worth a million bucks. Or society this, or my boss this, or that. But what does God think of me? Wow, he calls me a son. He calls me a daughter. He calls me his beloved child. Your day getting better? And the Lord gives you the faith to believe that because it's his truth. The scriptures remind us, and we hear them here a lot. We hear them in Sunday school. We hear them in small group. We hopefully hear them from the pulpit because it's, it's our hope another one let's read this so it is with Christ's body we are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other so like it or not we belong together oh boy we're gonna have fun now sometimes we chafe on each other like holy sandpaper we do but I need you to sand on me sometimes and Maybe I sand on you a little bit more than you like. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. Maybe you need it. I need it from you. I know that. It goes both ways, right? And so one more here. Uh, Ephesians 4.25. Read this with me. Let us tell our neighbors the truth. Speak the truth to each other. For we are all parts of the same body. Wow. These are just a smattering of verses, right, on body life. We are connected. Life is not a solo act. Peter said, respect everyone, love the family of believers. Love your brother, love your sister in Jesus. And so I'm going to spend the remaining moments here touching just briefly again on the psalmist, but really on the local church, the modern sanctuary of God where we come together to meet with God. And I want you to, to have a fresh sense of, of its importance in your life. A local expression of Christ's church. Here we aspire to be a place where Christ alone is on a pedestal. Don't put me on a pedestal. Don't put any of your leaders, your other shepherds on pedestals. You know why? Because only Jesus can be, is the one who won't fall off the pedestal. You can put him on a pedestal and it's safe. I'm in, you put me on one, I'm going to fall off. Sooner or later, I'm going to disappoint you. Not because I want to, but because I'm human. There are cracks in my life. I'm not going to be everything I would want to be or could be. I'm a work in progress. Same for you. We shouldn't put each other on pedestals in the local church. Oh, she's just the greatest person ever. Oh, he's just my hero in the faith. Be careful with that. It's great to have good saints around us that are very important, that encourage us and challenge us to be more uh, like Jesus, right? But only Jesus can be on the pedestal in this church, right? I hope that's what you want. That's all I want. I only want him. If somebody else is, we're not doing church anymore. We're doing something else, and we don't want to be a part of that. Church is important because it keeps you centered. If, if, church, if this church is a place where Jesus is alone on the pedestal, and he truly is, then and you come here and you're part of it, your life, when you come back here, keeps realigning with that central truth. And instead of you putting yourself on the pedestal or your spouse or somebody else, you keep putting him back on the pedestal because church reminds you of that. Jesus said, "I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's got the power to execute that, to fulfill that. That's such an awesome thing. I could build a sermon on that one, but I'm going to move on quickly. number two, Christ's word is where is something you experience in the church. Now you can go read the Bible and you should. Individual study, right? But in the context of a local congregation, you're going to hear it taught. You're going to have a chance to interact with others who are, who are going to, you're going to meet people who know the word maybe a little better than you do, and you're going to be encouraged to move deeper into the scriptures. Biblical literacy matters, and society today is about as biblically illiterate. And I'm not, this might sound like an overstatement, but it's not. So, so society outside of the, the Christian church today is as biblically illiterate as time was during the dark ages. People don't, don't know what, what's up and down when it comes from the Scriptures. You know those uh, interviews, those on-the-street interviews that Jay Leno used to do with people? Uh, he went out on the streets of Southern California some time ago and interviewed people about the Bible. And he wasn't trying to be tricky. He was trying to give them really softball questions with partial answers. He, he asked one woman a question, Did Adam and Eve have any children? And she thought about it and she said, Nope, they never had any kids. Wow. He then said to somebody else, Name the two brothers, Cain and, you know what it is, I hope, Abel. He got an absolute blank stare like some of you right now, huh? No, I'm kidding. He says, Okay, what happened to Lot's wife? Zero response. And then one of the bystanders blurted out, who was Lot? Little hint, she turned into a, the person says, an angel? He turned to someone else, and he says, how many commandments are there? One guy said, there are three. Three. Another person said, no, there are 20. Another one said, no, it's like the disciples. There were 12. Everyone had a wrong answer. And then he says, can you name four of them? Nobody could name four. And so then he said, who are the four members of the Beatles? And the crowd roared and everybody named them all. We are biblically illiterate outside the church. I pray we're not that in the church, right? The word of God strengthens our hope. It gives us everything we need. And so moving towards number three, together. Together we work to make the love of Christ the first and last word in our lives. Church helps us fulfill the great commandment and the great commission. You know those passages well. Jesus said the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said the second commandment is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. How do you do that if you're living your Christian life in some kind of a solo act? You need others to help you fulfill the great commandment of Jesus. We need each other to do this. Same with the Great Commission. How do you evangelize the world and build up the body of Christ by yourself? You can't. How do you, you can't do it, but together we can work at it. So the body, the church, the local assembly of believers. And then fourthly, we grow in hope in the local church by centering life upon Christ, who is on the pedestal, of course. I want you to see that today. And as we come back to the psalm, one last look at the psalm. As the psalmist looked through the eyes of, with humility at who God was, look what he writes. Look at the hope in his life. Now, we focus on Christ. He was focused on, of course, the the Father. We focus on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But look at verse 23. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Where's his focus? And I want to emphasize this to you. He made a decision, didn't he? He said, I'm going to turn my back on the world. I'm not looking at all these guys that I've envied. I'm not going to let greed and envy overtake me. I am going to look to you. I am continually with you. It's a deliberate decision. And you and I need to imitate that. He says, you hold my right hand. He didn't say, I'm going to hold their hand in your hand. He says, you hold me. You guide me with your counsel. That's his word. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Wow. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Again, decision time. Decision time. I choose you. I choose faith, he says, over fear. I choose faith over envy. I choose faith in the goodness of God over all of this oppression around me. Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. Again, it's a choice. It's a deliberate choice. I will be near him. I will keep coming after him. I've cast my lot in with him and his people, and I'll keep doing it. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. He's keeping God in the center of life. So I encourage you today, come to church every week with honest anticipation of encouraging the living king. Encountering, excuse me, the living king and being renewed.